five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. on the internet so let's go on a journey let's let's go to san francisco in the 1970s and um the first person we're going to look at here is george moscone george moscone is a key figure there are there are so a lot of this is starting to happen so if you watch the sunday night show I talk about how 1977 is this really pivotal year. And if you look at the timeline of 77, and I did that for four and a half hours on um, Sunday night, you'll see all these plane crashes. You'll see just a bunch of like really strange shit. You go to 78, there's not hardly as many plane crashes. It's weird, right? A lot of that is astrological. I mean, you have the Jupiter-Neptune opposition during that time, Jupiter and Gemini, Neptune and Sagittarius. But then Jupiter moves on. It goes into Cancer, I think partially Leo in 1978. So the travel stuff begins to end. And in it, like all the travel chaos and um, destruction ends in the first part of 78. And 78 becomes a very different year. But if you go back into 1977, you will see Anita Bryant coming out against um, homosexuality, her coalition was very powerful. They were getting Dade County, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul to retract their local gay rights initiatives. Like this is a big deal. So they have to take Anita Bryant out, which they do with um, like getting humiliated with the pie in her face, like public humiliation and then she's humiliated again and again and again on Saturday Night Live. She's made an object of scorn. Then to counter a lot of this stuff, and I talked about this on Sunday night, they launched a television series, Soap, with Billy Crystal as TV's first gay um, character. That's not by accident. They're doing that on purpose because they want to normalize they want to begin to normalize this uh, character lifestyle, right? In, in the face of people kind of waking up and going, whoa, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe she's right. Maybe she's a little rigid, but maybe she's right. And San Francisco plays a huge role in this because Harvey Milk is elected to the um, to be a, a, a councilman in one of San Francisco's districts. And he doesn't get there without George Moscone. George Moscone is his key figure for a number of different reasons. Now, he will go down in history as one of the biggest piece of shits in San Francisco politics, and there's a lot of them. 
so let's uh let's travel through the life of George Moscone. This whole idea of progressive liberalism has has its roots with three people initially. It's George Moscone and the Burton brothers, John Burton and Philip Burton. And they're the ones who begin to champion this ideal of progressive politics. Now, they can't do it without the, uh, the demographic makeup of San Francisco and California in general. Because I, I lived, I grew up in California, and I grew up there in the 70s. And I grew up in San Jose, and my upbringing was, in, you know, was incredibly diverse. So my, and it was weird for me because I came from my first three years. I came from a, a school in, in a town called Millbrae, which is where the uh, the airport is located, and it was pretty much all white. It was it was all white. We had a few Japanese kids. That's what I remember. We go to San Jose, and it's like this completely different world. And there are black kids, um, there are Mexican kids, there's Japanese kids because it was a, a, a farming area and the Japanese did a lot of farming, they owned a lot of farms there. And eventually it would become even more diverse. Um, by the time I'm a, like a sophomore in high school, um, a big a contingency of Filipino families arrive into the east side of San Jose. Um, the and then the, the Samoan families begin to come in. Um, and then we have people from Korea, Korean families start to come in. This is in the 70s. And then we have people from the Middle East coming in. And I was friends with this guy who was, he was Persian. Uh, his name was Ali, right? That was his name. He's Persian. So San Jose was this huge melting pot. And we didn't really have any issues. We all just kind of grew up together and, it was, you know, it, so when I look at where we are now, it's just, it, to me, it's just a, a completely strange world because that was not the world I grew up in. The world I grew up in was really diverse. And, you know, people hung out with themselves, you know, yet, you know, the, you your Mexican contingency we were pretty Mexican. They drove low riders and they hung out and they, Cruise story and came, but it wasn't like, you know, we hated them. Sometimes we even interacted. I fucking was in a low rider one time, you know, you know, and so you would have also sort of the, you know, the black groups and they would hang out together and eat lunch together. And, but again, there was this cross pollination. I'd, I'd get stoned with them and play basketball with them. So, you know, they were, you know, we were cool. Right. So it was, it wasn't like, it was like, yeah, you had, they had their groups. People had their groups. But it wasn't like they were exclusive. There was always one thing that kind of was the bridge between groups, and that, that was usually cannabis. But that's the world I grew up. So California was like that. And San Francisco was kind of a mirror of that. Like San Francisco was always this polyglot of people that would come, they would settle there, a huge Latino community in the Mission District. Um, there was a big black community in the Western edition, uh, Fillmore district. Like that's where eventually they all had to leave. They got, you know, relocated or, you know, um, gentrification came in. Right. Uh, you go back and you look at the Fillmore district, which is part of the Western edition. 
during like the 30s and 40s, man, it was the place. And they had jazz clubs and they had really high black culture in the Fillmore district in the 30s. It was interesting. So San Francisco is really diverse, super diverse, big Chinese community. And then all of a sudden it became, um, you know, like uh, Babylon by the Bay or Sodom and Gomorrah by the Bay. So you had a big homosexual. So incredibly diverse. So this idea of diversity is kind of baked in and it becomes this, place where these politics of diversity, progressivism, they all get hatched out of San Francisco. So let's just go through this. So Moscone was born in the Italian-American enclave. Okay, so you had a big Italian district there too, North Beach. The Moscone family comes from Piedmont in uh, Liguria. His father, George Joseph Moscone, was a prison guard at nearby San Quentin. His mother, Lena, was a homemaker, later went to work to support herself and her son after she separated from her husband. Moscone attended St. Uh, Brigades and then St. Ignatius College Preparatory, where he was a noted debater. He's a Sagittarius, by the way, and an all-city basketball star. He then attended College of the, of the Pacific on a basketball scholarship and played basketball for the UOP Tigers. Moscone studied at the uh, University of California Hastings College. So in, San, in that area, if you want to get a law degree, the other went to Bolt, which was connected to USF, or Hastings, which was connected to uh, Berkeley, where he received his law degree. He married Gina Badanza, um, who he had known since he was in grade school. The Mosconis were going to have four children, all serving in the United States. Dave Moscone started a private practice. As a young man playing basketball and as a young lawyer, Moscone became close with friends John L. Burton, who would later become a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. John's older brother, Philip, a member of the California State Assembly, Recruited Moscone to run for an assembly seat in 1960 as a Democrat. Though he lost that race, Moscone would go on to win a seat in the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. That's what they call councilmen. They call them supervisors there. On the board, Moscone was known for his defense of poor people, racial minorities, and small business owners. So he's a Democrat, right? That's what he's doing. He's a Sag, so it kind of lines up in some ways, um, as well as supporting his first successful fight in San Francisco to block construction on proposed freeway that would have cut through Golden Gate Park in several neighborhoods. Probably not a bad thing to stand up for. In 1966, Moscone ran and won, ran for one seat in the California State Senate, representing the 10th district from San Francisco County. Moscone was quickly rising through the ranks of the California Democratic Party and became um, closely associated with a loose alliance of progressive politicians. This is where the whole thing is hatched. All right, watch what happens here. San Francisco led by the Burton brothers. The alliance was known as the Burton machine and included John Burton, Philip Burton, and assemblyman Willie Brown. Soon after his election to the state Senate, Moscone was elected by his party to serve as majority leader. He was reelected to the 10th district seat in 1970 and to the newly redistricted 6th district seat, representing parts of San Francisco and San Mateo County. Now, part of that is the airport. So he's overseeing the airport, which is a big deal. He successfully sponsored legislation into the school lunch program for California students, um, as well as a bill legalizing abortion that was signed into law by Governor Ronald Reagan. That's weird, right? So Reagan signs this abortion bill. Very strange. In 74, Moscone briefly considered a run for governor of California, but dropped out after a short time in favor of California Secretary of State Jerry Brown. Now, Brown is... Um, a Jesuit who went, to, who went to college at the University of Santa Clara, which is the same college that Gavin Newsom went to college from. So they're, they're Jesuits. 
Uh, University of Pacific, I don't believe, I don't think that's a, a Jesuit school. I don't, I don't think it is. Um, I'd have to go back and look. I don't think it's a Jesuit school, but he is a Catholic, right? He's a Roman Catholic. Uh, on December 19th, Moscone announced he run for mayor of San Francisco. Whoops. In the 75 race, in a close race in November 75, Moscone plays first with conservative city supervisor John Barbagelata. Barbagelata is a car dealer, by the way. And second, and supervisor Diane Feinstein coming in third. This is important. So Feinstein begins to emerge as a political figure. She loses to Moscone. This is important. Keep that. Just bookmark that. Moscone and Barbara Gelada thus both advanced to the mandated runoff election in December, where Moscone narrowly defeated the conservative supervisor by fewer than 5,000 votes. Okay. Big deal here. Really big deal because those 5,000 votes came from a very unusual place. And I'll show you where they come from. Liberals also won the city's other top executive offices that year as Joseph Freitas was elected district attorney and Richard Hongisto was reelected to the office of sheriff. Dick Hongisto is a weird dude. Okay? He's a very weird dude. Now, where Hongisto comes into play is that when he's first elected, he's the he hires somebody who is connected to computers, analytics, databases, and demographics. And he's the first candidate to use that those kinds of um, sciences and metrics to get elected. So Hongisto, very strange character. Super, he, he, like controversy followed him, like, you know, stink on a pig. Um, but again, this is important because out of that, this, this idea of using computers and analytics and demographics becomes universal. And it, and it comes out of San Francisco, right? Which is connected to Silicon Valley, Stanford, where a lot of this stuff is happening. Okay, let's keep going here. Moscone is a gra ran a grassroots mayoral campaign, which drew volunteers from organizations like Glide Memorial Church. That's uh, Cecil, what's his name? Cecil Williams. Delancey Street, which is the whole Delancey Street thing is also very weird. Maybe I'll get into that tomorrow's show a rehabilitation center for ex-convicts there's also like this weird kind of mind control thing that's going on with delancey street san francisco is this fucking bizarre hotbed of like programs the cia mind control it, it, it happens with lsd like there's a whole lsd program going on there we talked on friday with um hans about stanford um, Ken Kesey, The Grateful Dead, all the B and stuff, which happens in San Francisco. So San Francisco is this hotbed of just programming, which you'll see here in a second. Okay. And the People's Temple. Oh, the People's Temple is probably the most important connection here with Jim Jones, which was initially known as a church preaching racial equality and social justice. So here we have this weird crossover of social justice, racial equality, this weird preacher, Jim Jones, who is 
um, CIA operative. He's also very skilled in mind control, by the way. Another weird thing, right? But you can see it. You can see these things getting worked on. Racial equality, social justice, but turned into a fanatical political cult. Where has politics gone now? Politics has become a fanatical political cult, whether it's the cult of Obama or the cult of Trump. Like, this is where it all starts in a, in a very targeted way. For the rest of his life, Barbara Gelada maintained that the People's Temple had committed massive election fraud on behalf of Moscone by busing people in from out of town to vote multiple times under the names of deceased San Francisco residents. The People's Temple also worked to get out the vote in precincts where Moscone received a 12 to 1 vote margin over Barbara Gelada. After the People's Temple work and votes by Temple members were instrumental in delivering a close victory for Moscone, Moscone appointed Temple leader Jim Jones as chairman of the San Francisco Housing Commission. There's your payback right there. Moscone's first year as mayor was spent preventing the San Francisco Giants professional team basically for moving to Toronto and advocating a citywide ballot initiative in favor of district election to the Board of Supervisors. So before that, if you had a, a super and let's say it was in your district, you, if you could only vote for that person in your district. So he changes that. He makes these elections citywide. So if you're somebody who lives in the Castro district, you could only vote for whoever was your supervisor at that time would have been like somebody like Harvey Milk. But if you lived in the Western edition or you lived in Chinatown, theoretically you could vote for Harvey Milk, even though he had nothing to do with you. Right. So he changes the rules, opens this thing up for, you know, quite potentially more corruption, more sway in terms of the vote and ballot. So he's instrumental. Moscone's instrumental here. Um, he appointed Del Martin, the first openly gay woman, and Kathleen Hardiman, Arnold, uh, now Kathleen Rand-Reed, the first black woman as commissioners on the San Francisco Commission of Status of the Women. So you can see, like, the, the whole model that we have now, these, like, you know, weird little commissions, these weird little things that make sure that a progressive agenda is carried out kind of on a street level, that all that all gets baked here in San Francisco. And I guarantee you, he's not smart enough to do this. He's taking his marching orders from the Burton brothers. They're telling him what to do. Moscone also appointed liberal Oakland police chief Charles Gain to the San Francisco Police Department. So now you're seeing, you can see it now, right? The, the Moscone becomes the first, but in that time in America, mayors were pretty conservative. Moscone breaks the mold and he becomes like this first liberal mayor. Like I think there are like six maybe liberal democratic mayors in the in big cities. But but look at it now. Like every single major city is the Moscone model. I'm telling you, it's the Moscone model. They're molding the model at this time in San Francisco. Just look what I'm talking about here. Uh, so there were lawsuits brought up by minorities claiming discrimination recruiting practices, but maybe there were. So he hires a guy, a black police chief to basically say, Hey, you know, I'm going to show you how enlightened we are. It's kind of like the NFL in hiring black coaches. 
Same model. In April 77, Moscone stood up to officials in Washington. So it's because of Moscone that the Americans with Disability Act passes. He's weird because some of that stuff is actually okay. Where like it's kind of it, that that's a, it's okay because you don't want to be discriminated against if you're if you have a disability. I get it. But now that's been broadly interpreted. It's so broadly interpreted now that it's almost a cudgel. It's been weaponized. Uh, in 1977, Moscone Freitas and Gisto all easily survived recall election pushed by defeated Moscone opponent John Barbagelotta in business interests. It was a political vindication for Moscone who won in a landslide. Barbagelotta announced he's retiring from politics. That year also marked the passage of the district election system. Uh, the city's first district elections of Board of Supervisors took place in 1977, the pivotal year. Among those elected were the city's first openly gay supervisor, Harvey Milk, a single mother and attorney, Carol Ruth Silver, who also winds up becoming gay or was, who knows, right? Chinese-American Gordon Lau and fireman and police officer Dan White. Okay, this is important. So now Dan White enters the scene. Milk, Silver, and Lau, along with John Molinari and Robert Gonzalez, made up Moscone's allies on the board. While Dan White, Diane Feinstein, Quentin Kopp, um, Ella Hill Hutch, Lee Dolson, and Ron Pelosi formed a loosely organized coalition to oppose Moscone and his initiatives. Now, these people that I'm talking about, like Feinstein and Ron Pelosi, they're business people. Diane Feinstein is married to Dick Bloom, who is a real estate developer. Ron Pelosi is a real estate developer. Uh, Quentin Cop, I think he was, I think he was an attorney. Anyway, these are these are business people with business interests. They're not Republicans. They're not conservatives. They're just looking after their own interests. Meanwhile, these other people are looking, their interests are not business, but people and demographics. And you can see where Pelosi and Feinstein will ultimately do pivots to that model. By the way, while not abandoning their business interests, so they wind up getting the best of both worlds. Okay. So Feinstein was elected president of the Board of Supervisors in a six to five vote with Moscone supporters backing Lau. It was generally believed that Feinstein, having twice lost the election to the office of mayor, would support cop against Moscone in the 1979 election and retire rather than run for the board again. But something happens along the way. In August 1977, after Housing Commission Chairman Jim Jones fled to Jonestown following media scrutiny alleging criminal wrongdoing, Moscone announced his office would not investigate Jones in the People's Temple. Isn't that convenient? He's not going to do it. It's like, nope, hands off. Because if he did, he'd be investigating himself and basically creating a model of busing in people to vote for elections. Like, it's all here. You can see the whole fucking thing here. The, the whole model is baked into San Francisco during this period of time. This, this, is, this, is, this is the blueprint. This is the template for everything that we're experiencing now. Okay, so this is where it gets very weird. Very, very. The later mass murder suicide at Jonestown dominated national headlines at the time of Moscone's death. So Moscone 
theoretically gets killed by Dan White at the same time. It's like it's like these weird bookend events. Very weird. So Moscone gets killed. Harvey Milk gets killed. Dan White, the White Knight, theoretically is the guy that kills him. It's almost impossible, though, for Dan White to kill him. Because he has to do all this shit to, to make it happen. Right? But this whole thing happens in Jonestown. Leo Ryan from the Bay Area, from San Mateo, flies down there, brings Jackie Spire, because there are people from that area who have family members there, and they're complaining. They're sending all these letters to, you know, if, if Moscone's not going to investigate, so they got to go up another layer to Leo Ryan. And so they fly down to Jonestown, and then they walk around Jonestown, and they're disturbed by what they see. So here's what I think happens. This is what I think happens. I think that there's a hit squad that is either already there in place in Guyana and Jonestown, or they're flown in very quickly. I don't necessarily believe the Kool-Aid story. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And you, so there's supposed to be strict nine in the Kool-Aid, right? You know how much strychnine it would take to kill all those people? A lot. And so in order so in order to get that, you'd either have to have a record of buying it or maybe it'd have to come through illicit illegal means. And frankly, if even in the most severe cases of mind control, there is an element where people want to survive. And there were survivors of Jonestown. There were people that did not die there. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Remember that. And who knows? Maybe some people willingly drank the Kool-Aid. There, may, there are a lot of people that I don't think drank the Kool-Aid. So what was happening is that with Jim Jones, who I believe was a total CIA operation, and his influence in the Moscone election, which could really fuck things up in a big way, right? Because they were going to use this model and turn this model into, well, the model that we have today, they needed to make sure that there were no um, smoking guns. So I think what they did is they deployed a hit squad to Guyana to wipe those people out. And, and some of the, you know, maybe some of it had to do with Kool-Aid, but I'm thinking more along the lines of a hit squad. Go in and you wipe everyone out. Now, what happens to Moscone during this time? So let's let's read this. After the massacre, Temple members revealed to the New York Times that the Temple arranged for busloads of members to be bused from Redwood Redwood Valley. It's Redwood Valley. I think it's Redwood City. To San Francisco to vote in the election. A former Temple member stated that... Uh, is that applicable? No. A former temple member stated that many of those f- members were not registered to vote in San Francisco. Well, another member said Jones swayed elections. Prior to leaving San Francisco, Joan claim- Jones claimed to have bribed Moscone with sexual favors from female temple members, including one who was underage. His son, Jim Jones Jr., later remembered 
how Moscone frequented temple parties with a cocktail in his hand and doing some grab ass grabbing. So Moscone was part of this group of people in San Francisco, and they're all they're all leches. By the way, um, Dick Bloom's part of that group. Willie Brown's part of that group. Herb Kane's part of that group. Um, Cyril, uh, what's his name? Uh, Wilkes Bashford is a part of that group. Um, Cyril, what's his name? Um, they'll come to me. They're all part of this group, and they're all fucking perverts. You know, they 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 busted this underage um, prostitute ring in San Francisco. They'd all go there. They all went there and they all had, you know, kind of weird sex habits. Willie Brown gets into like weird sexual territory with, um, ultimately like weird transgender stuff later on. Uh, okay. So I'll tell that story a little bit later when we get to Willie Brown. So one of the things that Moscone would do is back in the day when they would have phone booths, like the phone booth would have the glass part up top and the bottom part would usually be covered and, and they would have like uh, the logo of the phone company, you know, like painted on the glass. So you couldn't see through the bottom part of the phone booth. So Moscone would get prostitutes. He would get them in the phone booth and uh, he would, he would call people like he would call somebody like John Barber Gelata. And, and, you know, kind of bark at him, chirp at him, talk with him, whatever. And, and while he was doing that, you know, he, he, you know, the prostitute would be doing oral sex on him in the phone booth. That was your mayor of San Francisco. And that's probably um, a kind of a white bread version. Okay. So all this stuff with him being extorted by the people's temple and Jim Jones, I have no doubt it happened. So here we go. This is where things get cranked up. Late 1978, Dan White resigned from the Board of Supervisors. Now, I think White is another mind control dude. Comes out of the military. He's, you know, he's got all these medals of honor, but he's, he's kind of fucked up, right? He's kind of fucked up. So he resigns from the Board of Supervisors. His resignation would allow Moscone to choose White's successor, which could tip the board's balance of power in Moscone's favor. Recognizing this matter as such, those who supported a more conservative agenda opposed integration of the police and fire departments, talked White into changing his mind because Moscone wanted to bring them all together, concentrating power, right, in the emergency services world. White then requested Moscone appoint him to his former seat. So he wants to resign. Who knows? Maybe Moscone said, well, why don't you sleep on it? Or let me think about it. Or, you know, I'll take it provisionally. So then White gets pressure and they say, you can't do that. You can't do that. Go back. You got to go back. So he goes back. But by this time, Moscone's had time to think about it, talk to other people. So Moscone originally indicated a willingness to reconsider but more liberal city leaders, including Harvey Milk, lobbied him against the idea. Moscone ultimately decided not to appoint White on November 27th, three days after Moscone's 49th birthday. White, uh, White went to San Francisco City Hall to meet with Moscone to make a final plea for appointment. White sneaked into the city hall through a base. This is where it gets weird. So he's supposed to sneak in through a basement window. Like they've looked at that basement window. It's really hard to get into. Super hard to get into to avoid the metal detector. Um, he brought with him a service revolver. Uh, when Moscone agreed to talk with him in a private room, White pulled out the gun, gun out of his suit jacket and killed Moscone. White then reloaded his gun and walked across City Hall to Milk's office where White shot and killed Milk as well. So 
the idea here is that Dan White killed them. Killed them. I'm not sure that happened. I do think Dan White is has such to be a total Manchurian candidate. Dan White later turned himself in at the police station where he was formerly an officer. The term Twinkie defense has its origin in the murder trial that followed. White was convicted of the lesser crime in manslaughter due in part to his claim of severe depression, which White's attorneys argued was evidenced by his consumption of Twinkies and other junk foods. So the year before we saw Gary Gilmore, who clearly has a disturbed, troubled past, would, would really fit the profile of somebody who might have even been a schizophrenic. He can't cut a, he can't cut a break in his trial. But Dan White catches a break a year later because, or you know, a little bit later because um, he claims he had a, his, his lawyers claim he had a, uh, an addiction to Twinkies and other junk foods. Outrage over White's lenient sentence provoked mass riot. I lived there. I listened to it on the radio. It was crazy. Mass riots in San Francisco during which um, police cars were set on fire by, by angry protesters. White was released from prison. And then shortly after he committed suicide because he could he couldn't integrate. I think he opened a pretzel pretzel business on Pier Pier 39. Moscone is interred at Holy Cross Cemetery, Cemetery in Colma, alongside his mother Lena. Moscone Center, San Francisco's largest convention center, exhibition hall, and Moscone Recreation Center are named in his honor. Uh, Moscone and Milk also have schools named after them. George Moscone Elementary, Harvey Milk Elementary, and Harvey Milk High School. Uh, Moscone's main political legacy is his opening up San Francisco City Hall to a more diverse and inclusive place with political appointments that represented the full spectrum of the population, including minorities and the growing gay community. So you see what Moscone has done. He and the Burton brothers, along with Willie Brown, create the template. You have the whole voting scandal, busing people in. That's all Jim Jones. He's a CIA operative. He has to hightail it out of San Francisco because the heat is on. He brings his people with him. They start this, you know, crazy fucked up Jonestown in Guyana, run a whole different set of protocols, experiment, mind control. Like it's a, it's a weird place. Right. And Leo Ryan's getting complaints, flies down there, hit squat. It's like, okay, we got, we got, we got to terminate. Let's terminate this mission. And who knows if they terminate Jim Jones? I don't know. Maybe they did. I think they probably did because they don't want, you know, they wouldn't want him talking. Because if he did, it'd lead all the way back to Moscone and all this shit, which is the template really for what happens later on. Um. That's interesting. This guy, Robert Arneson, did this bust of Moscone, which is not very, uh, it's not It's not very favorable. It doesn't portray him the greatest light. So what happens here, okay, so let's keep going. Okay. Um, Arneson included as part of the decoration on the pedestal, the likeness of a pistol that gained public disapproval at, issue were references to Harvey Milk, the assassinations and the Twinkie defense, the white knight rights and Diane Feinstein's mayoral succession. So we go into Feinstein 
And Feinstein is one of the biggest winners out of this whole thing. So she graduated from Stanford. Um, her last name, her real name is Diane Emile Goldman. I think she married this guy Feinstein. She divorces him. She marries eventually Dick Bloom. So let's go into um, Board of Supervisors. That's where she gets her start. On November 27th, 1978, Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated by former Supervisor Dan Wade. I don't think White killed them, which is why he got such a lenient sentence. I think he was mind-controlled. I think somebody else kills Moscone and Milk, just like in part, probably part of the same hit team that went into Jonestown. Feinstein became acting mayor as she was president of the Board of Supervisors. So that's important. She got, she got elected. So she was primed to take over Moscone's position. Supervisors John Molinari, Ella, uh, Ella Hill Hutch, Ron Pelosi, Nancy's husband, Robert Gonzalez, and Gordon Lau endorsed Feinstein for an appointment um, as mayor by the Board of Supervisors. Gonzalez initially ran to be appointed by uh, the Board of Supervisors as mayor, but dropped out. The Board of Supervisors voted 6-2 to two to appoint Feinstein as mayor. She was inaugurated by Chief Justice Rose Byrd of the Supreme Court of California on December 4th, becoming San Francisco's first female mayor. Molinari was selected to replace Feinstein as president of the Board of Supervisors by a vote of 8-2. to two. Uh, One of Feinstein's first challenges as mayor was the state of San Francisco cable car system. So she becomes mayor. Feinstein was seen as a relatively moderate Democrat, one of the country's most liberal cities as a supervisor. She was, she was considered part of the centrist bloc that included white and generally opposed Moscone as mayor. Feinstein angered the city's large gay community by vetoing domestic partner legislation. The 1980 presidential election with a majority of Bay Area Democrats continuing to support tenor, Senator Ted Kennedy's primary challenge to Jimmy Carter. Um, Eve, uh, in the 1980 presidential election, well, okay, so... After it was clear Kennedy could not win, Feinstein strongly supported the Carter-Mondale ticket. She was given a high-profile speaking role in the opening night of the August Democratic National Convention, urging delegates to reject Kennedy delegates' proposal to open the convention, thereby allowing delegates to ignore their state's popular vote. Where did we hear that before? Where did we hear that before? We heard that with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. So you see, passes prologue. So eventually, um, oh, that's so interesting. Um, Feinstein revealed sensitive details about the hunt for serial killer Richard Ramirez at a 1985 press conference, antagonizing detectives by publicizing details of his crimes known only to law enforcement thus jeopardizing their investigation. Why did she do that? City and State Magazine named Feinstein the, na the nation's most effective mayor. She served on the Trilateral Commission during the 1980s. So she's a player. She could not unseat Pete Wilson because Pete Wilson is more corrupt than she was. So the big beneficiary to all this is Feinstein. Like she's the one that comes out on top. They create this machine, they bake the model, uh, and then they kill everybody that's associated with it pretty much, except for Dick Hongisto. Uh, but he's no threat. Like the people that are the threat really are going to be George Moscone, 
who had a lot of political baggage in Jim Jones. And what do they do? They go in, they wipe out Jonestown. Uh, I don't think Dan White killed them. I don't think Dan White killed Moscone. I don't think he killed Harvey Milk. I think it was somebody else. Uh, and maybe, uh, you know, uh, Moscone agreed to meet White. You know, they bring White in somehow into the building. I think he's a total Manchurian candidate. I mean, the guy, the guy, he had a history of violence with the police force. He's a, he's a, he's a vet. He's a Vietnam vet. He's so he's damaged goods. Dan White is damaged fucking goods. It's all there. Feinstein rises to political prominence. She runs the city. Um, she keeps some of those progressive elements in place, but she is, she is business first. Remember she's connected with Ron Pelosi part of this business block and they eventually incorporate elements of the progressive and kind of liberal ideology because they understand how to play that game, the demographic game. And they understand that it's a huge voting block because if you go back to, let's, let's go to Hongisto for a second and I'll show you like the role he plays. So we're going to go into uh, Richard Hongisto. Where is he? He's a strange dude. He's a super, super, super strange guy. So here's Hongisto. Uh, he's originally from San Francisco, grew up in the Sunset District, went to George Washington High. And this is, he's just got all this weird shit, like just weird stuff. And he tries to be kind of a lefty. He tries to be kind of a lefty, but it, doesn't really work. Like he gets crucified for being a lefty. It's, it's weird because they're there. So he was the first sheriff to hire gay and lesbian deputies. Now this is important. Hongisto's election had been orchestrated methodically by computer analyst, Les Morgan using the then new idea of precinct analysis of voting trends. Hongisto was considered the first candidate for public office in San Francisco to be elected largely by outsiders, gay, Latino, and other minority voters who had a strong voting presence but had been ignored by the political establishment. This is very important. It's casting the die for everything and where we are now. Everything. He's just got a very weird um, political career. Very strange. Which I don't want to get into too much because it'll waste time. But he's important because they bake that model. They figure out, okay, these people are not really being served. Let's mobilize. Let's let's get them to vote for us. It's very smart right? because you know the normal political establishment, they're more interested in in you know kind of this tiered system. So if they could attract the upper parts of the tier, promise political favors, be pro-business, and then the middle class by you know, keeping some level of taxes down so that they could somehow enjoy a relatively comfortable life in San Francisco, that would be basically enough to be elected. But that left out this entire other group and these people swoop in and go, hey, look, we got numbers here. Let's, let's, let's put them together. Let's create a coalition. Cecil Williams plays a big role in that. Jim Jones plays a big role in that. Moscone plays a big role in that. The Burton brothers, Willie Brown, I'll talk about Willie Brown tomorrow because I don't have enough time to cover them today. And they create the machine. It's all there, right? It is all there. 
But then they got to bury the bodies. They, they got to bury the bodies. And the bodies are Jim Jones, Harvey Milk. And of course, Milk becomes this sacrificial character. It kind of sanctifies. Remember, we're coming out of this Anita Bryant culture. And there's all this pushback on like gay rights and you know, you know, middle America is kind of waking up and they're going, what the fuck is going on here? Like we're, we're starting to see the normalization of something that could take us in a, a very weird direction. I think their instincts were right. And I'm not, look, if you want to be gay and you want to have a gay, a gay lifestyle, gay, I'm not here to, you know, to judge you, right. That's, you know, some will say it's not your choice. Uh, maybe it's not, I don't know, but it's, you know, you're, you're consenting, right? You're consenting to a partner, a certain, you know, agreement in a relationship, maybe a certain lifestyle, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to play the judge with that. What I'm, what I am formally against is the promotion and the marketing and the normalization um, of that world in a way that is duplicitous and it's completely duplicitous. And I lived in California and I was there when they had the, the, the gay marriage initiative, which lost by the way. And then they had that overturned by this uh, judge who claimed he was a libertarian, but also gay. Just like that. You can have a judge overturn it. Not a problem. Eventually goes to the Supreme court. And during the Obama administration, well, you get what you get, right? And the 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 the, the 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 protest at that time from the from the gay community was, oh, you think that we're going to get into schools and we're going to promote our lifestyles to your kids? Don't worry about that. We don't want any of that. We just want to be fairly represented, uh, just like any other couple, and we want to have the same rights as any other couple which includes, you know, whatever, right? Tax, tax, whatever, whatever. Want the same rights as any other couple. That that's really what their 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 cry of protest was. Well, what the fuck has happened? Do you think that that was really true? No. It's not. Look what's happened to our schools. Look what's happened with the promotion of what I would call a moral degeneracy. I can't I can't soft sell it, you know, any more than that. It's a moral degeneracy and it's pervasive now. And one of the reasons, and that's one of the reasons why I just felt like everything about that was so duplicitous. It was so duplicitous. Oh no, we don't want, we don't want to get in your kids' heads. Oh yeah. Look what's happened. It's a bunch of horseshit. And so by having Harvey Milk die, he becomes this sacrificial figure you know, now all of a sudden, remember now this is in the pushback period of Anita Bryant. And you have this, um, the year before, Billy Crystal's character pops in on soap. Harvey Milk dies. St. Harvey. Is, didn't they fucking make a movie called St. Harvey or something like that? Of course, Sean Penn plays him. Wins an Oscar. Um, didn't, I think Gus Van Sant directed it. It was the mayor It was the mayor of, I don't know, what, whatever the fuck it was called. But there's a reason why he is off. Is he off because Dan White didn't like gays, homosexuals, and he was the, you know, the 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 little bug in the ear of Moscone, 
Did he do that? Was that really why Dan White did that? If Dan White even did it? No, I think they did it because he was a ritual sacrifice and they wanted to kill Harvey Milk because they needed a martyr at that time. They needed a martyr and they killed Moscone because he was dirty as fuck and he was tied to Jim Jones and he was tied to this whole voting scandal. Big time connected to the Burton brothers. And by the way, kind of leads into who we're going to talk about tomorrow, Willie Brown, who probably becomes at some point, one of the most powerful politicians in the United States. He doesn't have to be president. He doesn't even have to be governor, but his influence across the board in California state politics is uh, pretty deep and pretty um, pervasive. So he's, he's part of this seed. He's part of this seed group that is hatched out of San Francisco in the 70s, primarily 77, 78. And of course, his greatest protege is Kamala Harris, who becomes fucking vice president of the United States. Like, Six degrees of separation, it's right there. So that's why I wanted to kind of get into this stuff. And of course, Feinstein goes on to have a very long political career, super long, very influential, and, and you know embraces this weird world of liberal and progressive politics on things like uh, right to life, gun control, all those things. You know, checks those boxes, but then is also deeply enmeshed in the whole business world, protecting her interests, her husband's interests. They're connected to all kinds of properties in the Bay Area, including um, the, the Numi plant, which is where Elon Musk would have uh, the, te- the first Tesla, Tesla factory that like they own that. Diane Feinstein and Dick Bloom own that. They, they own a ton of shit in the Bay Area. So she's in the perfect position because she can benefit from all these business relationships, but at the same time, she remodels herself as this kind of neoliberal. And then of course you get Pelosi and it's, it's really um, uh, Ron Pelosi, the Paul Pelosi. So Ron Pelosi, Ron Pelosi, let me see the, uh, the connection with Nancy Pelosi. Give me one second here. Because her husband is uh, Paul Pelosi. So Ron, where is he? Uh, Mayor of San Francisco. Uh, Let's see. Refusal to investigate people's temple. It's going to be back here. Okay. So Hastings, Democratic Party. Majority leader. Mm -mm Mm-mm. Freitas, People's Temple. Anyway, well, I'll, I'll revisit this tomorrow. We'll look at uh, we'll look at Nancy Pelosi. Ron, here we're almost there. It's down here. Okay, Ron Pelosi. Okay. So his brother, his brother's Paul. So this is the Pelosi family. Paul is Nancy's husband. So he's a brother-in-law. So he they're so they're deeply. Entrenched. He's a former uncle by marriage of Governor Gavin Newsom. There you go. 
So he and Barbara Newsom were married. Uh, he remained, uh, 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 he, he was remarried to Susan Ferguson. Of course, they have a child that dies. Interesting. So this is part of his background. Uh, he's an association of Bay Area govern governments, Golden Gate Bridge District, and League of California Cities. Those are pretty powerful. Uh, he ran against uh, Milton Marks for Senate. That's a losing cause. Okay, we'll return to the scene of the crime, San Francisco, California, circa 1977, 78.